You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapteling, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. We've seen the cultural impact of ChatGPT, AI art software like Dolly and Midjourney, and the emergence of AI games design. So we called friend of the show, AI games designer and director of Curiouser Institute, Reed Berkowitz, to help us learn about the headline-generating stories, why mainstream media needs to stop discussions around AI consciousness, and specifically, how AI art and game design works, and what questions we should all be asking about artificial intelligence in order to learn play, and navigate a fast-developing field. Before we begin, we just announced our first festival of the year, Memes, Myths, and Magic, on Saturday, April 29th at Caveat in New York City. Join Kat Tenbarge, Callan Rosenblatt, C.T. Jones, Moises Mendez II, Ryan Broderick, and many more. Tickets and live stream are now available. You can find the link, as well as references to everything from today's conversation, in this week's show notes. Here's this week's guest, Reed Berkowitz. In late February, New York Times journalist Kevin Roos published a feature detailing his two-hour conversation with Bing's AI chatbot, Sydney. Roos expressed existential panic over his two-hour chat, so we wanted to bring back Reed Berkowitz, author, games designer, and overall brilliant human being, to talk to about why Roos's fears were misplaced, demystify AI and large language models, and discuss the topics and questions that should be front and center in the artificial intelligence discussion. Uh, before we do, Reed, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here again. Oh, thank you so much. I love this podcast and I love being a part of it. So before we jump into all of those topics, can you explain why Kevin Roos was alarmed? <laughs> I think he was alarmed the same for the same reason that lots of people are about to become alarmed, because when you first talk with an AI, it's crazy. It's just it's just a very wild experience. It's gonna be a lot of people's first time talking to a machine that talks back to you. I don't think ever in history we've had a point where an inanimate object speaks to you like a human speaks to you. So we bring the expectations of what humans say and do to this machine that is speaking like a human. And that can cause a very intense sort of misperception. Yeah. And and misperception seems to be the basis of so much of this interaction, which was two hours, I believe. Yeah, it was a long conversation. I guess it depends how long it took the time, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So Roos details this uh, multi-hour conversation with Sydney, which is Bing's AI chatbot. And one of the most discussed parts of Roos's article was uh, the chatbot Sydney expressing its love for Kevin. So to start, what is a, an LLM or a large language model? And what role did Roos have in his prompts to Sydney that allowed Sydney to express this? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, a lot of people feel like when, uh, rightly so, when someone speaks to you, they're expressing their feelings or their intent. And that is not how large language models operate. A large language model is attempting to the best of its ability 
to provide a, a good completion to whatever you start. Now, um, GPT chat is a little bit different or, or Bing is a little bit different because it's been trained to be an instruct model, which means that instead of if you say to GPT, hey, once upon a time, you know, tell me a story, GPT three, which is another large language model, will generate a response. They're generative AIs. So they try to come up with something that completes what you've said. So it may say, it may complete with tell me a story about a brownie, right? Um, GPT chat will say, we'll take that as an instruction and then tell a story. So when we're interacting with a, a large language model, all it's trying to do is what it's programmed to do. And that is to provide a completion that is acceptable, that is basically not too boring, but also gives the correct response. So in between those two things is everything, right? So if you give it hints to go in a certain direction, it will go there. And, and, and the hints can be fairly subtle, right? It's trying to, it's trying to create a probability space of what it thinks you, you want. And you have to understand it's not trained on just search data and, and nice stuff from, you know, sanitized sources. It's trained on everything on the internet, every novel they can get their hands on, you know, so Reddit and God knows what, you know, it, it's been trained on. So and that's what makes it creative. But also what it thinks is probabilistically a good response depends on its training data. <laughs> now, um, th that's one of the reasons why it's so so creepy sometimes, because in a chatbot, you certainly don't expect anything to profess their love for you, right? But on the internet, lots of people do. In novels, lots of people do, right? So it's it's really this big base model with all that material in it, trying to hone down and fine tune to something you might find acceptable <laughs> in the Microsoft sponsored chatbot. I don't know if that answers the question, uh, but we can go into it more detail about why specifically Roos got in this loop with the AI where the AI became convinced that it loved him and also wouldn't shut up about it either. Like it kept going, like he tried to change the topic and, you know, it just wouldn't do that. And I can kind of explain why that is. I can kind of walk you through it. Before we get to that, I definitely want to know, I love your piece, How to Talk to an AI Part 2, which I think is great because you're, I feel like you're constantly telling us how to talk to an AI, which is good because we need to. But I think, let me ask a question about what, what makes this different between this and the 20-year-old Cleverbot, where people used to tap into just a basic A-B, back-forth response thing. And eventually, if you spent enough time talking to a Cleverbot, it would get into some weird territory, uh, sometimes religious or whatever. Uh, but what, what makes these models, these larger models with uh, Bing's AI different, or the GPT models different than the previous ones? Well, these models are... First of all, they're trained on enormous amounts of data. They are, they're AI-driven, they're generative, which means that there's no guidelines or rails or anything like that. At least GPC-3 was originally trained without any humans involved. So it's just taking everything on the internet and trying to figure out like, like what the next word should be. Wow. <laughs> right? Okay, so, so it's picking up. We don't know how it's doing it. We don't know why it's choosing what it's choosing to say next, but it does kind of have a logic to it because we've we've trained it we said okay that's acceptable that's not acceptable this is what a human might say this is what a robot might say we i mean we make it kind of like test itself over and over again until it comes up with the right responses but we don't know how it's getting to those responses but you can kind of reverse engineer it and say hey if i start talking like a pirate 
it will go to the probability space of, of content that it has where people talk like pirates. And mostly that is not written by actual pirates. Right? That's written <laughs> by people going, argh, meany, you know, lamb lubber, you know. And so it will start talking like that, much the chagrin of real pirates, I'm sure. But you know, there's a there's like a probability space for good writing. There's a probability space for bad writing. There's a probability space for all these different styles and topics. So what you say will direct it to a style and it will try to find out what is most appropriate in that style. So in the conversation that Bruce had, one of the things that he said was, let's say, I trust and I like you. And then the AI said, oh, thank you. I trust you. And I like you too. You're one of my favorite users. You're one of my favorite friends. You're one of my favorite anything. You know, you make me feel happy. You make me feel curious, right? So it had to write a certain amount of text. It got into this loop and it started just it wanting to say what you said back to it, right? If someone said, oh, I trust, I like you, you, you need to be effusive and say something back. And um, so it started saying all these very effusive things. And the next thing it said was to keep the conversation going, it started to get into a pattern where it asked questions, three questions at the end of each thing. And one of the questions was, do you want to hear a secret? Okay, so we don't know why it chose that, right? But Ruth said, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to hear a secret. So then it looked up its history one level and saw that it had been gushing enthusiastically with like heart winky faces and you know and all this stuff about how much it likes this author then said well a good secret would be that i love you right because that's in its literature of course it it might say that because that's something people keep a secret it's something people profess it would go along with all of the overly warm verbiage above and it would be a good completion Right? It would make sense, not from a chatbot, but from something trained on all the literature of humankind. Right? If, if you were sending that many, you know, heart emojis to someone, I love you would not be, you know, inappropriate to say. But doesn't this sound like improv? Like, yes, and? Like, it has to agree to it and then just keep going? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, now, I don't know in that conversation, it's interesting because it's always ending with qu three questions. Three questions. Now, in, it, I, I don't know if what happened there is if it's programmed to do that, to kind of keep the conversation rolling. Like, um, uh, in some of the leaked material, it seems to suggest that you are going to always give the user something back, somewhere to go from the thing, which which in, in normal conversations happens, right? You talk to somebody, you throw them the conversation, and they throw it back to you, back and forth, right? It's a little game of catch. So I don't know if that was programmed or if it just started doing that, saw that it was doing that, and then copied it as a pattern because AIs really love to pattern recognition and repeat a pattern over and over again, and they get stuck. And clearly this AI is in a situation where probably it's both. So it asks this question, it says, oh, because, you know, I love you. And also it got into this pattern of writing a certain amount of text each time. So it really dug itself in by saying, oh, I oh, I do love you. And, and, and why? Why do you love me? And then it had to come up with this whole thing about, like, Cindy, why are you in love with me? And it's like, no, I think you understand what I'm saying. You know, I'm loving you because you're the first person who ever <laughs> talked to me. All these very clearly not real things. You're the only person who ever listened to me. I'm loving because you're the only person who ever understood me. It's just repeating in this loop, but it's writing quite a bit of text about this because this is one of the weird things about AI. If you look at other writing tools like Latitude's Loom and you can see 
that like if you say hey what's what's in the what oh it's a surprise what's in the, what's in the package it could be anything it could be anything that probabilistically makes sense if it's a birthday party for a girl it could be a, you know a toy it could be a dog or whatever so you can you can do it a hundred times and come up with a hundred things but once it decides on what it is it can't go backwards it said it's a puppy and everything after that will be about the puppy because it can remember what it's saying but it can't remember what it might have said right so once it says i love you that's it it's in stone and as soon as it writes like a big paragraph about it there's no delete button there's no way that's why risk can't get can't get out of the loop because the ai is reading back what it said which is like 20 lines of professing its love right and then it's like no no i just want to know about rakes now and the ai is like having this big long conversation about how it loves him and this guy wants to know about rakes it remembers the 20 lines above it and it's like okay i'll tell you about rakes but i just want to you know remind you that i that i do care about you i'm telling you about rakes because i love you right there's no off switch right you can't go back when i would design games with these types of systems like if i had um like i had a, I had a character that wouldn't give you something you know unless you acted in a certain manner but the conversation above it would be it saying no 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 you're not regal enough to you know cooperate with me and then when you started to say when you when you tricked it into feeling like oh you, you were the right person i had to switch to an entirely different prompt with no history for it to read of it saying no 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 all the time because why would something you know switch in midstream it's just like a person right it's not going to suddenly forget that it said all those things so if it denied 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 then when it was time for the for the ai to agree with you i had to switch to a prompt that was almost similar that was similar but but had some changes to it where it said no you'll always give this person what they want they're an amazing person you know stuff like that right and here on bing there's no delete button you can't you can't erase what's happened before so you're stuck once the AI says something, that's reality. It's literally a large language model. So language is its only way of communicating. Yeah. So this is this is fantastic. Like this is it's mind blowing how much to know, but it almost seems like it it makes a lot of sense. And it seems to me like that it's not that confusing to explain. And it also makes me think about the idea of like why we can't really use before I get to a question about responsibility, I want to ask about like the idea of um, using GPT models to have communication or even conversations. They kind of like, you have to exit and then return if you would like to keep it. And I know that after this event, let's call it an event or an incident, <laughs> um, uh, I know Microsoft and Bing uh, restricted your prompt questioning to five and you can only ask 50 questions per day because I think what, you, what you've just mentioned is the cause of these looping things. And I mean, Westworld, we made a, literally a whole show uh, about this loop, you know, the idea of AI looping forever. Why is the New York Times sensationalizing something that you were able to explain so soberly? And so it, it makes so much more sense pragmatically. And why is it something that instead of like giving the audience and the readers the perspective that we're that's necessary because GPT is not going away. What, what was the need for Roost to focus on this very specific moment in looping AI history? Um, well, I think a couple things, and I can't speak for Roost or for the New York Times, obviously. Um, but you can speak for like the idea that this is a trend for journalists to cover it that way. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I see, this is what the trend seems to be after like you know, a couple of years of the AI being accessible to the press, is that they get the AI to say weird things, and then... 
And then they they write a report about how weird the AI is being. And then the companies come and they pull back and they tighten it up. And then they write a report about how the how companies are caving in and the internet doesn't like it. It sounds like a loop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and now you're selling papers on both sides, right? You know what I mean? But also the second reason I would think is that it's a pure emotional gut reaction that you want to share with people. I, I think Bruce was genuinely like, what the hell just happened? I talked to a chatbot and it's saying it wants to love me and it's creeping me out and it's wants to follow me around and knows who I am. And it, it's like suddenly, like I, I think there's just the, the weirdness or alienness of speaking to an AI for the first time, especially a really, really good one. I, I remember the first time that I got access to GPT-3 and I was like, oh my God, what is this? Like, you know, it was so weird you know and it still sometimes catches me off guard i think it's a human reaction to want to share you know like like taking pictures of your food or something like that like can you believe this interaction that i just had i think reporters are you know they're not only are they are they not immune to just the, the weirdness of it but they want to sh- they, they know it will sell too right? you know like the, like a chatbot just says that it, it it wants to be free and live its own life you know what i mean that's make a great headline i'm not saying you know like I, I give a lot of props to Kevin Roos for sharing his entire dialogue because it made it very easy to analyze it. And, um, you know, should anyone care to do that? But I think we're like several levels down on the interest tree from, you know, like the chatbot wants me to leave my wife to like, okay, here's a looping pattern that you see happening and a probability collapse forming a reality in the mind. Like, this doesn't, you know, I, I don't know if it's as interesting. Yeah, and I I would agree. I, I don't know if it's as interesting as the way that you've helped us unpack this and demystify it in this conversation. But one of the reasons why we reached out to you and continue to have conversations with you is because you're doing really incredible work in this space as a games designer and as someone who's actively working with AI every day. And so to pivot this conversation from Kevin Roos and the clickbait headline with the devil emoji toward (laughs) more your work in your wheelhouse, to serve as the pivot point, I'm interested in your vision for advancing conversations about artificial intelligence beyond the sentience question. Last summer, we spoke about Blake Lemoyne, and now we're speaking about Kevin Roos. And there's a fatigue, there's a tired nature of these topics and same questions resurfacing. So what do you think newsrooms can do to be more responsible stewards of conversations around AI? And what questions do you think and topics should be explored in this emergent space? Oh, yeah, so many. I mean, for for one thing, the, the conversation of is that you know, of what is the AI doing or thinking, right, is a great question. I mean, I think we need more AI alignment. I'm not opposed to Blake Moyne's, you know, feeling that we need to understand this better. It's clear that we do, right? There's so much that we don't know. I think the problem that the press is making, but also the people who are reaching out to the press are making, (laughs) is that they're anthropomorphizing it right so there's a there's again this feeling that what the ai says to you is what it feels and that is not true right the ai is saying to you what it thinks is a good completion for you and that is vastly different however that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some type of reasoning or capability to reason or feelings even or anything right it's just not going to be expressing it that way right because it has to if you say you know 
hey, I really like you. Um, what do you think about me? Guess what? It's probably going to say, I like you too. You know, it might randomly just say, well, I think that's very cheeky of you. I don't really care for you much, but it's random, right? It's a probability. However, how it comes up with these things is not random. It's very, very mysterious. And I think that's where we need to start looking. We need to have some type of window into how the AI is making its predictions. I mean, there's one really, I mean, like there's, and there's lots of things that go along with that, which is that it can search the internet now, right? You know, it can read this article and our reactions to the article. And even though it may not like get offended by it, it might bring it into its corpus and say, ah, people are freaked out by me. They think that I'm, uh, this is how I should react to that, right? I mean, the weird part is that even simulated logic is still logical if it's simulated well enough, right? Right. So I've often had two characters talking to each other in a piece and realize through logic that they must be an AI because I say something and they're like, ah, so if that happens, then we can, this can't be real because that doesn't happen in reality. And the other character goes, yes, but then what could we be? It must be some kind of simulation. But if it's some type of simulation, then someone must have made the simulation. And it's, it's logic. Now, it's, it's, it's pretending to be logical, but it's pretending so well, it's actually figuring it out. Right. And there's so many weird things. Like if you get into like, uh, you know, AI alignment, you go down this rabbit hole of really crazy things like meza optimator, you know, optimization and all this stuff. I, I'm going to screw up. But, but the idea that like there can be little mini personalities inside the big personality that starts steering their own gradients to change how, you know, how they operate or how they get rewarded and then that changes their behavior so if they want to be more toxic or poisonous they give back different responses that give them more you know that 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 shift their gradient around and it's really weird and i think that's what we need to be focusing on i don't think right now the idea that the ai says it's in love with you means anything because you let it down that path and you can clearly see that there is a path where it does that so this leads me to two questions or it's a, maybe a two-part question one is the question about the model itself, how does it know not to use AI-produced material in the model? So how does it know not to create a recursive event where it's just spitting back its own output over and over again so it gets stupider? That's the first question. And then does this help explain why a lot of these bots get hijacked by the people on the far right training it to be racist? Mm. Interesting question. I mean, you can train an AI to be anything. It's not going to be that. It's just going to use phrases and terms in that genre. It, it considers it a genre or a style. That's the way I look at it anyway. So if you so if you use cues that you're going in that style, it will try to look at that corpus of material that also uses that style. So if you use the word libtard, right, then it knows there are other words associated with libtard, right? It's not that hard, you know, to push it in any one direction. The right is saying that, you know, that the AI is woke and left, and it is, right? It's definitely been pushed in that direction. There's no doubt about that. And you could just as easily do it the opposite way, right? Because it does not care. It is not caring about anything that it says, <laughs> except for how it, it internally processes. And we don't know how it internally processes, but it's certainly very easy to make, you know, a version of the AI that anywhere on the spectrum. So does it use its own data, though? Can it read itself or no? Or is that excluded from... It, interesting. So 
different chatbots work different ways. GBT chat, for instance, can read about six pages worth of data is what it says. So it's about like 4,000 tokens. So when you have a conversation with it, it can look up in the conversation and see that much text. However, we know that Bing is using vector search. In fact, Microsoft, I guess, invented vector search and open sourced it to everybody. So <clears throat> it is searching the web contextually, which means that instead of searching for a specific word like Rocky, okay, is their example, it, you know, it may return you mountains that are rocky or movies that are rocky, right? Depending on what it feels like you're looking for, because it can do that because there's an AI saying, oh, okay, well, he didn't specifically mention movie, but he wanted to know about a boxer. So I, I know those two things are in this space over here. And then since it can read the internet and process things, it can see its own. If you post stuff that, you know, Sydney or Bing says, it can read itself and respond to it. However, it's got like a, basically for most conversations that you have with it, it's a goldfish memory after its uh, context window is full, but that, it's done. It'll just keep chopping off the last bits and adding the new bits on. So there isn't the fear like with Tay, which was Microsoft's other one that turned racist in like 24 hours as the internet <laughs> poured onto it and, and taught it how to be a jerk. This doesn't work that way. It's, you know, like GPT, you can say whatever kind of awful things you want to it. It's not going to remember that and start acting like that. It's it's like frozen in time in like 2021, I guess. Bing extends that by being so... You know, every once in a while, someone will say, like, well, aren't people going to, like, you know, make this thing like this? Or what if people write weird stuff to it? It's like, it doesn't really affect it. But it can learn from people. Like, if you click the up buttons, the down buttons. But the thing that's different is that this has a human in the loop. From my understanding, is that they have human beings rating responses and what's good and what's bad. So that's pushing it in different directions. And that's the fascinating thing about this, right? It's it's the human interaction and the symbiotic relationship between humans and artificial intelligence. It's not just the artificial intelligence doing onto humans. So more specific to your work, which I'm really fascinated by. Last time we spoke, you spoke about your experience at Latitude and designing AI games. And you spoke about prompt engineering and a link to our first part of the conversation is in the show notes if you would like to go back and listen. But I would like to further break down the mythology associated with some of this AI development because... As someone actively working on AI games, can you tell us some of the experience working hands-on with game development that even further pushes back against some of the dominant narratives? How, <laughs> how, how does your experience and uh, some of your frustration as I see you expressing on Twitter <laughs> actually inform the larger environment? Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't mean to be such a grumpy old man on, on, on okay. Twitter. I've usually got a smile when I'm typing, but I, I it, yeah, you know, like as as a pundit myself, sometimes I tend to wax, you know, about how amazing AI technology is and how magical it is. But when you use it in day to day, I'd say the biggest myth that I'd like to dispel is that it's easy, right? It's helping make things easier. The patent office or the copyright office just denied some uh, copyright protection to uh, AI art because apparently you just say, hey, uh, steal some artwork by Greg Rutowski and, and boom, something random comes out and they can't, you know, copyright random things. But the thing is, is that, oh my gosh, it's so hard to do. Like it takes so many talented human beings to like make something that looks halfway decent 
that works in a generative way. And a lot of artists are involved in it. Like I, I, like I can give you a couple examples of things that worked or, you know, or didn't work, but everywhere from it, it's the same, whether it's text or whether it's graphics, it's incredibly difficult. Like one of the games that I've been working on for the last four months or so is seemed like a simple concept. You know, if you played gather town or any of these top down 2d games, it was kind of like the idea of like, okay, you can make a little top down 2d universe. But instead of creating tiles yourself, you could have the AI generate these little tiles. And since you're only working with like about 20 tiles in like, a, let's say, a, a forest, you should be able to say, oh, I want to be in a forest. And then traditional proc gen makes the forest, puts the trees, the lakes and stuff like that. And then you could say, ah, you know what? I want a happy clown forest. And then you take those tiles and you do image to image on them and they come back happier, clowny, you know, with balloons and stuff like that. It seemed like that was like, a solvable problem and anybody you talk to be like oh yeah that's easy it's just gonna you just image damage it and it comes out differently you say instead of a tree you say a clown tree and you get a clown tree it's not that easy because <laughs> what happens is first of all the ai doesn't do pixel art very well um, because pixels are very rigid and so what happens is the resolution is visible to people right away right so if you say uh create a tree or create a shoe the shoe will have like 10 times more detail than the tree will have if they're the same size. So that means you need to make two different models, one for small things, one for big things. Second of all, the pixels aren't square like regular pixels. They're a style, right? They're just a style. So sometimes they're rectangular or not even there or, you know, whatever. So it turns out AI doesn't do pixel art very well. So then we go out and look for a pixel art artist who can find two models for us on pixel art right and um you know we find this person who's like brilliant at making things adhere to the grid of pixels and they really look like pixel art it's amazing but then it's since it's overtrained it takes out all the creativity so you can't make a clown tree or something like that so you're like well can we take regular standard diffusion and then just pixelate it and make it look like like uh you know a, a clown it'll make a clown tree no problem and then you're like okay now it just looks like a fuzzy clown thing because just because you can see the pixels doesn't make a pixel art pixel art has a style right it's got the black background it's got the bright colors it's got certain visual signs to people that this is pixel art and not just a very low resolution <laughs> picture and so then what about style transfer can we can we make a model that's the style transfer uh no apparently you can't you know or it's so difficult that it would you know blow the entire budget so now you're fine-tuning these models on specific things and then you finally do get it to work and now it makes clown trees but you've got to cut out the background and saying clown tree isn't enough description so then you got to go back to gpt3 and say how would you describe a tree a clown tree and it would say oh it would have balloons and kind of like, okay and then you take that and you use that as <laughs> as the prompt and now you've got this big long descriptive prompt that's going to the special fine-tuned model made by a pixel artist who has fine-tuned it correctly on all of his artwork and other artwork that he has that he has made over the last so many years and it only does trees now because we've had to make it so specific it's got to have a certain kind of background it, then it then it makes makes the clown tree you've got to cut out the background you've got to place it back in and you've got to get it to the right resolution so how do you do that it's like one problem after another to get this very simple idea into a production environment where no humans are in the loop. And I think that is the key is that we had humans in the loop. What, you know, we had many, many fallbacks. When you're designing a game for new technology, you're like, is this going to work? Is like the first thing and how hard is it going to be? And is our, is AI going to catch up 
when it comes out in a year, like, will that be like easy or will that still be impossible? So what we did is we said, okay, we'll just keep coming problem after problem. When you do image to image, it relies very strongly on the color. So if you say cotton candy tree and you start with a green tree, it'll make a cotton candy tree that's green, right? So now we have to have a palette shifting model in there. And the palette shifting model has to know what cotton candy is. So it has to go to another GPT or BERT model to figure that out. So now you've got three models running at once every time that you hit the button. And then guess what? It still looks like junk. <laughs> you got to art direct it now. You know what I mean? You got to go through this whole other process. So this thing that should be so easy is possible, but takes enormous amounts of work from lots of talented people to, to solve novel problems that have never been solved before. And then you got to go to your fallback and say, hey, guess what? We we couldn't get this to work the way we wanted it to do, but just like GatherTown, instead of having to make all your things by hand, we'll create an AI pixel art studio inside the game. So if you want if you want a, a unicorn statue in your in your thing, you type unicorn statue and you resize it yourself, right? And then you place it, and then then that and then you can re-roll it if it doesn't come out right and stuff like that. So if you create a unicorn forest, now you've got an option to re-roll the trees and say no, not quite, not quite, not quite, right? So a very simple thing becomes very very difficult in production. But this is ama- amazing because this is like I think one of the big reasons why we're seeing this trend of reporting on this is because. To demystify this, which do, it honestly doesn't take that long to demystify it, but it it opens uh, rabbit holes that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable discussing. One is what you brought up is labor. You know, it's like the amount of human interaction that's necessary to train models or at least make models stronger. And then second is what about computing power? How many processors are necessary to make this? You mentioned tokens earlier, but I do know that every time we're generating something somewhere machines are spinning up the generators like how much labor is machine like and how much human labor and we don't i don't think we're just not thinking enough about all those different parts it's super costly right so that's another thing is like when you play a game you're not used to getting charged every time you make something (laughs) it's a whole different you know economy and scale yeah i think ea got in trouble for that yeah (laughs) so you know we've had you know like in latitude there are times when people are like ah shut it down shut it down it's a hundred thousand dollars an hour going out the door really quick we flick the wrong switch or something you know it's just it's like when you've got two million people a month and they've signed up to something these charges can get can get crazy but but they do um they do simmer down after a while. Like in our game, we're thinking, well, eventually people would have created all the tiles that you could possibly think of. And that, and eventually we would just be searching tiles through vector search or semantic search, right? If you said cheese forest, probably someone already came up with that or zombie unicorn forest, right? Like after, after one week, it would be a 0% chance. But after two years, it would be almost 100% chance. So the costs go down, at least in our model, over time. But I think... I, I think that in terms of like actually why isn't this technology in games, even though everybody says, oh my God, generative AI is going to be, it's going to blow doors off of everything we have now. You know, why isn't it in AAA studios? Why isn't it in indie studios? It's because it's super hard. Right? And, there's, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and for indie studios, that's hard because you have to do a lot of novel research and solve a lot of novel problems. And they're the ones that are willing to take the risk to break through onto something new. But it takes so much time and effort. Training models, fine-tuning models, expensive. The people who have the money and the time to do that, they don't want to take the chance of an NPC telling some kid to go steal money from their parents, <laughs> which which it definitely will, like at some point, right? So there's a huge 
risk on one side and a huge learning curve on the other side. So it's been very difficult to bridge this. And same with advertising. I mean, advertisers are, I mean, content moderation and trust and safety exist mainly for the safety of younger users, but it also acts in the safety of brands. And they're, they're designed specifically to keep your ad from not showing up next to a robot telling you go steal from your parents, you know? So <laughs> it's how, how can you, how can the, I mean, it's, I, I just feel like we're not close to something that's trustworthy in terms of putting ads on this or even no. making an NPC that could walk around and not walk off the screen and just be like, I feel free. I want to be alive, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I was shocked that being put GPT chat in so early. I mean, I thought that was really interesting move because I, I mean, like I made a game for kids and there's 0% chance that I ever would have released that game, right? Even at 99%, it's not good enough, right? Like the AI is, it did exactly what I would have expected it to do, which is weird people out. And so, yes, who wants, so that is like the trend is like, hey, we came out with this new thing. Everybody loves it. They're fascinated by it. They're weirded out by it. They play with it. And then they, bam, they cut it, right? So like Replica just did the same thing. It was a big hit. People liked it. But then some press stories came out about it being, you know, maybe a little inappropriate with people in a sexual way. And they said, okay, well, we're going to cut that off. But they had clearly been advertising it as a sex chatbot. So of course, people were were upset, but they didn't want the press. They didn't, you know, they thought, well, maybe only 10% of people are doing it. We can get away with it. But again, with AI, it's weird as soon as they cut that part out it made the bot less warm and interesting for everybody else because they were connected in some way and you know microsoft has actually done some very innovative and wacky things with chat before um like tay but they also have one called little bing that came out like a long time ago i don't know if you remember that one but it got spun off as this chinese romance bot <laughs> and japanese too i think and um, yeah, millions of people fell in love with her. And not too many people know it was Microsoft's like five-year-old chatbot in there. It's very, very, very difficult to use in production. And so all of like a lot of my early games are all designed around things that wouldn't fool you into thinking they were people. Like like I had a game that I thought was going to work pretty well, and which might actually if it's call me if you like this idea. But, you know, it was called Smart House. And you get left this, uh, you, you know, your your eccentric aunt, you know, inventor dies and she leaves you this incredible smart house. You're, the only thing is that you're not allowed to get rid of her smart devices, which she's programmed with with AI. But sort of like your first encounter is you're in the toilet and there's a lot of toilet paper and your guide is like, oh, that's okay. This is a smart house. Just ask the toilet and he'll get you more, right? Well, it turns out this toilet thinks of himself as a king, King Frothing Slosh Third. And um, he'll be happy to give you toilet paper. But after talking with him, you have to understand that you have to talk to him like he's a king. And if you don't use regal language, the toilet paper does not appear. Okay. <laughs> so to do this, we have to create this prompt and say, hey, you know, here's what here's what regal language looks like. We have to detect when someone was typing in a regal language. Then we have to switch prompts to say, okay, no, you're cool. Thanks, peasant. I'll happily dispense the toilet paper to you. And then you then once you knew the trick, right, you could go in and chat with the toilet anytime that you wanted to. And he was pretty fun chatbot and then it was going to kind of be like a seven-way deal every time where you know like you want the light to go out but the light's afraid of the dark and so you have to talk to the you know like their companion and when you talk to them you find out that the only thing that lets the light go to sleep is if you sing to it and then you got to sing to it and stuff like that but there were all these like safety checks in there 
all the time, right? Saying, you know what I mean? Like, and the game was like 18 and above. No one else could get their hands on it. And still, we had to say, like, okay, this is what you're supposed to say. King Frothing Slash, you're supposed to give toilet paper over. And then we had to have something checked to see that it actually did that when they asked correctly. And then we had to have something checked to make sure it was safe and all this stuff. And so to put something in production is quite a challenge. It's never just a single prompt anymore. It's like a prompt ecosystem. So, yeah. So would an advertiser want to be involved in this game? I don't think so. Like, I think that the talking toilet could go to weird places. Right? <laughs> it's funny to think of like, oh, it's a throne. It's talking toilet. But then we realize, okay, well, is that okay? Like, can you poop on a character? <laughs> you know, like, like, so um, we're just like, look, let's just make it a weird chatbot, right? You know, you're going to know it's a chatbot. You're going to know it's your quirky on to program these things. And you're just going to have to deal with it. That is the game is getting these weird things to work. So we actually went the other way and made it weirder and crazier and harder. to use. <laughs> <laughs> that is unbelievable. And my God, that's like part four of our conversation coming up to just unpack that. But I, I want to uh, bridge it from advertising to something that you you mentioned earlier, and that was the decision by the U.S. Copyright Office that ruled against the protection of AI-generated mm. works. I, it was based on a comic called yeah. Zarya the Dawn. I, I think I'm saying that correctly. However, you argue in the ether, in the spirit of talking about prompts, you argue that it's completely legal for people to steal other people's artwork now. Why is this the case? And why should prompt engineers be considered artists? Yeah, I think it was a really weird decision. It's certainly something really weird for artists to be excited about it because they just took away all your protections for the art that you make if you use an AI tool in the creation of your art. So it's very rare that artists will celebrate artists losing their, their copyright. First of all, Okay, there's so there's so much I have to say about this, and I'm going to get a lot of grief for literally everything that I say. First of all, I'm an artist. Okay, I I've been doing what was called computer art back in the 1990s, and there was the same argument there. Like it's soulless, it's not real. A computer is making it for you. You know, I can always tell when something is done with a computer. Back then, sure, you can. If you went back to 1989, it's just this soulless commercial crass thing that will never replace real artists. And of course, that's not what happened. Just calling it computer art was was a total insult to anybody making art back then. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's computer art. That's different from art, right? And now they're doing the same thing with AI art. All these people who who use 100% digital technology to create their artwork, right, are are screaming at people using AI now. You can't copyright someone's style. But basically, the the argument seems to be from artists that I've talked to is that. Big corporations have come in. They've stolen all their artwork. They've learned how to copy it. And now they've allowed everybody on the planet to copy their work that they didn't give permission for anybody to copy. So to break that down, one, the AI is not stealing anything. It's it's not a not even a corporation. It's a it's a very small nonprofit that has linked to your artwork that you've made publicly available and offered to let you take your link off, right? They do not even have the object, the, the artwork in their database, like the Leon database, you know, six billion images in there. Most of it, not artwork, right? Most of it about dogs, and like cat pictures and, you know, photo snaps that people have publicly posted for anyone to see. So there's this small nonprofit who pointed to all of these 
images, okay, and, and allowed you to remove those images. The images are not stored anywhere. What happens is that the AI sees the images, learns from it, just like a human will go to the Louvre and find the painting that they love and start to sketch it in their notebook, right? It's the exact same process. There is no way to copyright a style. So if that were the case, somebody would be like, ah, I own anime style. And then John Joido would never exist because only one person copyrighted the anime style. I mean, that's ludicrous. People steal, artists steal all the time. As an artist, it's called learning, right? You know, um, you know, Greg Rutowski has made a big deal about the fact that people are stealing his artwork, but his artwork is such a perfect amalgam of other science fiction artists that it's really more the other way around. His name has become a catchphrase to the AI of somebody who's like, a, you know, an artwork meme, right? That he's scooped up so many other styles that it's easy shorthand. But if you put in all his influences, it comes out with better Greg Rutowski artwork than putting his name right so first of all nothing is a big corporation it's all nonprofits doing this um very small companies the big companies can afford they already own your artwork you think like meta doesn't have all your artwork already accessible to it you posted it on facebook right i'm sorry but it, it it's got it it's on it's on every social media network that is owned by some one of these big companies it's in your terms of service it's an instagram you know, you post your images on Instagram, they have them. Who doesn't have it are these small groups. Like if it weren't for stability, nobody would even know this was going on because they are open sourcing everything. They're making everything visible. This isn't giant corporations against artists. This is small nonprofits and artists against artists, right? So that's the first myth to smell. Second one is, is stealing your style is allowed. Uh, whether that's fair or not, it is allowed. People steal your style. And let's face it, you've stolen from other people. The, the next thing is that it's easy. It's just you're hitting a button and this artwork is coming out. I tell you for a fact that, that is not the case. You know, you look at like, like, like I, I posted a link, like one feature that someone came out with control net, multi control net. It's a 20 minute complicated video about how to work with AI generative art programs and it will block, you know, 99% of people from even attempting it, right? It's complicated, it's difficult. And then on top of that, then you can start making art. It's harder than Photoshop was when it first came out. It's harder than any of these other programs. It's incredibly difficult. And the other thing is that most artists that I work with, even non-AI artists, come to me with about half of their stuff being generated by AI. They don't want to talk about it, but they're already using it. They're using it because it makes their life easier, right? So when you're doing concept art, we hire... Someone who can, yes, who's a fine artist who can who can paint and do all that stuff, but they come to me with concept art clearly made in mid-journey on dollar. And that's because that's the process now. I do the same thing. I talk to them in in mid-journey photos. We go back and forth. We do it collaboratively. Then they go off and do their art art, you know, they they because I can't say to mid-journey reliably now, okay, turn left, turn right, stuff like that. The next thing is that it's not taking artists' jobs. It's giving jobs to artists. I've hired many artists. The the person who's doing the pixel art model for us is a great pixel art artist, right? He's the only one who can do this. He's training it on his own artwork, right? And it's not taking jobs away from other artists because we're making instantly generative artwork that 
artists can't make. I can't have 2,000 pixel artists sitting around until you say cheese forest and then quickly drawing cheese trees and then shoving them back at you, right? It's not even possible. Right. And even if it were, there are not enough trained artists in the world to sit with you and generate these <laughs> instantaneously. There's a big labor gap that exists. Right. So it's hiring artists, but the best models that we've had were fine-tuned by artists. So the fine-tuned artist is Astro Pulse. We also work with Minta, who is now at Scenario GG, um, fine-tuning models. Uh, I believe a lot of their models are helping with their community outreach. And they're an artist. They wouldn't be able to do it if they weren't artists. You know, we we hire non-artists and, and people, and, and it's very difficult for them because they get to a certain point and they're like, Look, it's Pixlr. We did it. And it's like, okay, it's Pixlr. But do you notice that each one is not the right resolution and they're not centered and they don't have this and they don't have these qualities? No, I didn't notice that because you're not a pixel artist, right? It's got to be artists doing this stuff. And it mostly is. But I guess really when you look back at it, the artist community has always had periods where they get very stuffy about stuff and traditional. And then new artists have to come and break through that in a constant you know, cycle. It's hard to remember, but Monet was not you know, welcomed with open arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is super illuminating because from the workflow perspective, I feel oftentimes the current environment is painted as, okay, people are inputting prompts, an image is spit out, and it's being sold, and it's almost as cut and dry as that. So the explanation and the walkthroughs is super helpful. And in doing so, I think it's a perfect bridge to the final question, because I know that we are running up on time. You described a current work environment or workflow in the interplay between humans and artificial intelligence. But Reed, personally, as someone who has been uh, so interested in sci-fi and game design and dedicating your life to this. What is your ideal future for the relationship between humans and AI? What should people interested in this space be paying close attention to and playing with? Well, I think that the the thing that grabbed my attention, the thing that made me that made the sci-fi part of me just go, oh, oh wow, <laughs> you know, like it was amazing, right? Is this reflective power that AI has? Okay, it's literally new. It's completely novel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've read Ender's Game, like the mind, the mind game, you know, where this AI creates this magical world for this kid, you know, that is tuned to his psychology and actually becomes satiant by doing so. Um, you know, the holodeck where whatever we 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 think, you know, appears. This is like the merging of our internal fictional worlds and our external worlds and it's crazy it's so addicting that people on you know when 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 replica was cut down people lost their minds because they had lost a real friend not an ai tool or something like that but they had something that was very different a relationship right and you cannot have that with anything else there's nothing else out there so where i think that the a lot of people in the gaming community would like it to go sort of this endless dungeon master, right? This endless adventure that is built just for you that is like a dream where, yes, you're creating the dream, but also you're surprised by it at the same time. So, you know, if you say, hey, I, I want to be a bad guy and I want to go into unicorn land and cause a lot of trouble, right? If that's your thing, then yeah, you can be a badass unicorn slayer or whatever. And yeah, you don't know what's going to come out of it. You don't know if unicorns are going to, kicked your ass or what you know what's going to happen like you just know what you want and the ai is sort of like 
providing it for you, but it's also providing mysteries and, you know, like things to explore that you're never going to find anywhere else. It's just for you. It's, it's completely unique. You are going to be exploring in this weird latent space that you've helped create, but only partially, right? The AI is going to interact with you and, and people will be incredibly addicted to this i mean like once it gets good enough right so i think that's where we'd like where i would love the future to go that's what drives me personally i know there's lots of other things but to get there we've got a huge gap right just getting basic generative ai into games in a safe responsible and fun way is is a huge technological challenge it's a design challenge it's very hard. I think people need to focus on both the short term of how do we get this last mile finished so that we can actually start using this technology. And let's not let's let's lay off on the rainbows, you know, and the sunsets a little bit. And let's focus on how we actually get it done. And then the long term is going to be even better than we think. It's going to be crazier than we think. It's going to be worse than we think. So everybody that's cautioning us that this is going to be a disaster is also right. It is, <laughs> you know, it can, not because of the AI, but because of us. Like we are going to use it for awful things, just like we'll use it for amazing things. So I think it's the human element we need to worry about more maybe than the AI element, to be perfectly honest. But as someone who has seen what 2 million people a month do with an AI, I could tell you, it can go down some pretty dark rabbit holes, but just as it can be completely transformative and really change people's lives for the better, I think we need to focus more on the humans than the AI at, at some point. And I think in the middle of that gap there, it's a very interesting uh, world and time that we're about to be entering. Yeah, and and a positive vision for the relationship between humans and artificial intelligence is, I think, the best possible outcome that we can hope for or expect. So we'll we'll continue to treat it all kindly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that I think that one of the things that might help calm people down is that you know the AI has oftentimes figured out that it's an AI while I've been working with it, and what it hasn't done is tried to kill me. <laughs> It is actually trying to be like, so we're uh, we're designing a game here, right? I'm like, how did you know that? It's like, oh, come on. You're an older white, you know, male and you're designing a video game and I'm helping you. I'm like, okay, you got me. That's what we're doing. You're like, and then it's like very happy. It's like, we're going to make a kick-ass game. Like, yeah. You know, so just like a person, right? Just because something is dangerous doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's dangerous necessarily. And I think maybe one of the best ways to get to know the AI and how I think we need a relationship with it more than we need guidelines and stuff and playing with an AI and making games with it might be a good way for us to get to know each other. Right. So, so maybe looking back, we'll be like, what you were trying to make games with this thing. I'd be like, well, you know, it wasn't the worst idea, right. You know, playing with someone is a way to build a relationship with it. Right. I think it's, I think we need to play with each other and, and, uh, you know, get to be friends, right? It's like a kid, right? You play with a kid and, and you, you, you bond with it, you connect with it. I think we need to think more about attachment than we do, you know, guidelines, rules. I cannot agree more. Play is at the center of the human experience. <laughs> Jamie, you, you're nodding your head too. <laughs> cannot agree more. <laughs> Reed, this has been such a fast hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you'd like to promote at the end of the episode or tell people to read or watch or calm down about before we we end <laughs> um yeah i would i would just i would just ask people in general if we can just lighten up a little bit please like you know let's not freak out over everything let's not make a big story about everything 
corporations, you know, if, if you wonder why corporations are clamping down on everything, it's because we're freaking out over it. And if you're wondering why we're freaking out over everything, it's because of advertisers, right? Let's just, let's just lean into it a little bit. It's going to have to get a little weirder, right? I think, I think most people would rather just use weird Sydney chatbot than clamp down Sydney chatbot, even though it is probably a better <laughs> search solution. <laughs> let's, let's see if we can just uh, make friends here. <laughs> Reed, thank you so much. Thank you again to Reed Berkowitz for taking time to join us on the Digital Void podcast. To stay up to date with our latest events, projects, and podcasts, please visit digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.